fine design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted and our one year anniversary of the show. We're very glad that you're joining us today. We're glad that you've been listening in on the show these last 52 weeks. And I hope you will stick around as we explore some new subjects in the weeks and months to come. Today, we talk about the global motorsport industry. This industry is expected to grow by more than 7% per year through 2026. Racing reaches 194 countries. Now, there are only 195 countries in the world, so I guess they're not watching NASCAR in Vatican City. <laughs> but only the Olympics and World Cup soccer engage a larger global audience. In the U.S., motorsport is an industry populated by more than 137,000 firms. In the United Kingdom, by contrast, that number is 4,300. Despite the fact that the majority of Formula One teams are based in the U.K., you might think racing is a young person's sport, and that's true if the criteria is younger than me. More than 60% of racing participants are between 30 and 50 years old. It's a business that's difficult to break into at any level, but once you're there, it's incredibly sticky. More than half of all racing-related businesses have been operating for more than 20 years. To help us make sense of all this, we're joined by Peter Partee, who by day is a restructuring lawyer with Hunt & Andrews Kurth in New York City, and when he's not doing that, he's proprietor of Partee Racing LLC. Peter, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the show. It's my pleasure, Ted. Thank you for having me. So... First off, you race cars. What type of racing do you do? <laughs> um, you know, uh, I do uh, club racing is what is gener it's generically referred to as. Um, and uh, there are various clubs, uh, BMW, Car Club of America, NASA is what I race. Um, and um, they usually are, you know, power to rate. Uh, to weight ratio um, divisions so that you equalize everybody in terms of the equipment that they're running. And it's just a competition of, of skill. Um, but you go from, you know, you have, uh, um, you know, particular club will take you to different racetracks over the course of a season. And, um, you know, you compete in, on points and, um, you know, uh, it's, it's fun. Um, you have a lot of camaraderie and, um, uh, but, you know, it's also a fair amount of, of competition. Everybody's trying to, you know, beef up their cars to be a little bit better than the next guys within the rules. Uh, but at the same time, um, also just trying to win based on skill. And, and this is this is amateur level racing. All amateur. Right? Yes. Um, <clears throat> you know, the 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 line, uh, just to be clear between amateur, the high end of amateur racing and pro racing is very thin. Um, I would say, you know, the, 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 the best amateur race racers clearly are, are uh, it's within their capability to be pro racers. They, they just choose not to pro race. <laughs> um, you know, the old saw that if you, you want to uh, 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 have a, a small fortune uh, racing, you better start off with a larger one. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and, and that is absolutely true. Um, it, 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 you know, racing per se is generally not a way to make a lot of money, period. It is uh, a way to, um, if you can, if you can just stay profitable <laughs> in racing, it's a good thing. So, um, so break even is a great day. It's a wonderful thing. Wonderful thing. My, or, or maybe just a little bit of profit. So I've always been struck by this memory that my high school psychology teacher once said that all boys are, are fall in love with trains 
in in, in, in their childhood and yeah. the ones who never shake it off end up going to work somewhere in the railroad industry it sounds yeah. like with racing that a subset of that particular selection of people said, you know, this would be great if we were in something a lot smaller and a lot flimsier that went way faster. Yep. So, exactly. so, so what brought you to the decision to get involved in racing automobiles? Well, you know, I told you, I warned you that you were going to press a button and I was going to talk for a long time about something. Uh, that's why we're there, here. There, there's, a, there's a long backstory here. Um, first of all, I was a hot rodder as a kid. Um, I, I love fast cars. Um, and, um, in, oh gosh, I guess it was 1980. My dad bought me for $2,000, a 1974 formula firebird with a 400 cubic inch Pontiac engine in it. Very dangerous car for a young man to have. And, uh, I made it even more dangerous. And I had a friend who had a Trans Am from 75 and the two of us together were constantly fiddling with our cars, uh, changing the jets on our quadrajet carburetors, uh, putting on headers and trying to go even faster and make them even more dangerous. Um, and, um, and at one point uh, my car blew up and my dad said, well, I guess you're going to have to figure out how to fix it, aren't you? And so I did. Hmm. And, um, so I learned cars. Um, as a young kid and fell in love with them. Um, but like so many people, you know, I spent um, years um, uh, in college and in grad school and in law school and then as a law career where I had absolutely no time for any of that and so paid no attention to it, but always loved it. Um, and so I guess starting in, um, oh, I don't know, it was 2008, um, I finally bought my dream car, which is... Um, what's referred to as an E39 M5 BMW. It's a five series BMW that was made from 2000 to 2003. And it has a particular engine in it, which I have now come to be one of the, the builders for, which is an S62. Uh, it was BMW's first real V8 motor um, that uh, of any note. And um, it, it, the car is revered now as one of the best sports sedans ever. Uh, and the engine in that car um, has actually been turned into a racing motor and won the Rolex 24 hours uh, a number of times um, in race format. So it's uh, basically BMW engineers, you got to love them. They took um, uh, a V8 motor, they really hopped it up and then they stuck it in a four-door sedan. And, uh, and so that just made everybody fall in love with that car. So I bought that car and I had the typical reaction to that. It made me, it re renewed my love for cars. It renewed my love for um, modifying them, making them even faster. I was not um, satisfied with, you know, exactly how fast it was or how well it handled. I wanted to make it even better, even more so. Um, and so uh, I continued down this path. I kind of um, gained this reputation online as being this guy who was willing to do almost anything to his car to make it that much little better, um, make it that much lighter, that much faster. <clears throat> and I developed a whole set of friends who were uh, in that milieu. Um, uh, and, um, and it was a wonderful thing for me. But at one point, I hired a guy to build me what I thought was my dream engine for that car. And I paid him a lot of money. And um, uh, it delivered the motor late, installed it, and it blew up one minute and 38 seconds after it started. Catastrophic failure. Um, uh, he blow, blow, blowing up is not a feature of engines, typically. No, it is not a good thing. It is not a good thing. And it was one of the most disappointing moments of my life. This was 2010, say. Okay. And, um, and so, you know, the guy he said, look, we screwed up. We'll fix it. He rebuilt it. Uh, and the next time it was about to blow up again 
because he had committed some errors that I don't need to get too technical about. In any event, I swore after that uh, I would never let another person build an engine for me, that I would do it myself. It was not that hard that I would figure it out um, and that I would never make the mistakes that that builder made. Um, and so um, I started down the path of thinking one of these days I'm going to, in addition to building my own engines, maybe I'll build them for other people. Um, <clears throat> and then in about 2015, my son, Sam, my youngest son, who is also into cars and racing, and I decided to uh, get our racing license. Um, and we went to, we took a, uh, the Bondurant Racing School out in Arizona for a four-day program. Had a great time, and it qualifies you for your your club racing license in various clubs, whether it's SCCA, BMW CCA, or NASA. And uh, those are the three principal racing clubs. Um, and um, and shortly thereafter, you know, I met, as part of that process, I met a guy named Andy Lee, uh, who was my race instructor uh, at Bondurant. Andy Lee is a pro racer and a very, very talented racer. He uh, was the um, rookie of the year in um, a, a particular racing series. He was a national karting champion when he was a kid, um, which is how racers generally progress. They start with karting as young kids, and then they move into race cars. And Andy was the very best at, at each of those steps. And um, and I thought long and hard after that about you know should we should we just um, you know found um, a pro racing team because that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to have a team. Um, and I loved it that much. And I thought Andy was a great guy to base the team around. And Andy really helped me understand the economics of racing, uh, what it would take to go through a particular season to do it right um, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of capital, in terms of talent, um, both mechanically as well as racing. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, and the idea was, you know, um, it would be Sam, me, Andy, and then one other pro racer and uh, kind of two pros and two amateurs, right? Um, and, um, but I ultimately decided against that um, because A, it was a ton of money. Well, let's, um, let's talk about that. Yeah. What, you know, looking at a thumbnail sketch of what it takes to start competing at, sure. at, the, at, the, at the entry level, you know, it, it, I mean, it, it, it would be- in pro racing, it's, it's different. Yeah, yeah, it would be casual to say, all you need is $40 million in a dream. <laughs> But, but what does it, it really take monetarily, infrastructure-wise? What do you actually sure. have to do to start? You know, um, Andy had, um, he was such a good driver that he had GM support, meaning GM would deliver to him each year what's called a body in white, um, um, you know, a, 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 a car body that has no seam sealer. Um, it has none of the stuff that you need to remove in order to make it a race car. Um, and then you just add stuff to it and make it a race car. Um, so it's, it's frame and panels. Yeah, it's frame and panels, but they're seam welded and they don't have seam uh, filler, um, which has to be removed when you uh, put in a cage to a car and that sort of thing. Uh, it, it's just, it facil it's, it's meant to be a race car right. and it doesn't have a VIN. It's never meant to be put on a road. Right. So, you know, GM would deliver all those parts to him and then he and his mechanic put the car together and then and race it. And when you have that kind of support, I mean, obviously that is a tremendous financial benefit. Um, but even with that support, um, you know, there were a couple of different levels at which one could do it in what was then the Pirelli World Challenge Series. Um, and, you know, for about $400,000 for a season, you could get through it, but it was going to be, you know, kind of running on fumes, doing it cheaply and not right. 
to do it right uh, based on, you know, with his business manager and every, even with GM support, it was going to be about a million dollars a season. And um, that was too rich for my blood. And um, it was also uh, premature for me uh, because I, I, I started thinking, you know, I don't even have a base of operations, right? I don't have a shop. Where am I going to put the race car? Right. <laughs> I mean, I got to have a place to put the damn car. Yeah, I got to have a place to work on it. Before and then I was you're like, loading it into a trailer and, and carting <laughs> right. it around the country for races, you've got to actually have a place <laughs> to store it in the winter. Yeah. And, and I don't think my neighbors are going to let me store a 48 foot trailer next to my house. Right. You know, I mean, they're not going to be happy about that. So um, I started rewinding and I started, I need to build the infrastructure from the ground up. Um, a, I need a race car. And so <clears throat> I, I built, I, I bought um, a, a, a built race car, a BMW E46 M3 that was uh, nicely caged and reasonably well put together that I could just immediately start racing at Virginia International Raceway, which is the closest uh, raceway to, to me. And, um, uh, and, you know, and I started doing that and I started enjoying it. But um, I also then decided I needed a shop. So I bought a shop. At, uh, at Virginia International Raceway, only 1,200 square feet, so it's tiny, but um, it was enough to have a lift and a place to store the car and then ultimately to have the equipment necessary to start building engines. Um, so the idea was, you know, I, I needed infrastructure in terms of a shop. I needed to have an infrastructure in, in terms of a shop where I could not only maintain the race car, but then also to um, engage in some activity that would earn enough money to support the racing habit. And you, you can't really just write a check to engage in the racing habit or you're going to go broke. I was going to say, you, you, you can. <laughs> so yeah, there I, are people who do. I guess, I guess. I mean, you know, there are the arrive and drive set and some of them are very good drivers. Um, no flies on them, but that's not me. Um, I'm never going to be that guy. I always want to build every aspect of the car myself now, especially after my experience with the blown motors. Sure. Um, I want to do everything myself. I want to do the electronics. I want to do the programming of the computer. I want to do the suspension, uh, the engine, the body work. I want it all to be on me. And, um, and I needed time to go through the experience of doing that, um, you know, um, for years before I was going to be ready to have any kind of real, um, you know, pro racing ambitions. Um, and in the meantime, I was doing club racing and, you know, I kind of made it up to the, the middle tier of, of, of fastness. Um, I, uh, I was never as fast as the fastest club racers, but I was not the slow uh, group either. Um, and, and, you know, um, but then uh, the car that I bought started petering out, needed to be refurbished. And so, you know, I've kind of been on a hiatus from doing the club racing for a bit while I refurbished that car. Um, but in the meantime, we have further developed our infrastructure and um, built more and more, uh, both S62 and S54, which is a straight six BMW engines. And we've kind of developed uh, some notoriety for doing it right. Well, I want to yeah. dive into that in a second. Uh, we're talking yeah. about the ins and outs of race of the racing business with Engine Jedi Peter Partee, and you mentioned that you've you your your I guess your what what sucked you in was engine issues, and 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 what you do a lot of now with Partee Racing is engine builds and engine rebuilds. Yes, and and that that sort of puts you kind of right in the middle of the racing industry because of the 137,000 businesses that kind of support the entire industry that is racing, 24% yep. of them 
are in the engine building and rebuilding business. That is the right. most common employment opportunity in performance <laughs> racing. And so if, if, the, if every racing team is a pyramid, at the top, you've right. either got the driver or the owner, and then somewhere down around the fat part of the pyramid is going to be people who touch engines. Well, not necessarily, right? There are some racing series that have what are called um, just crate motor requirements where, you know, everybody gets the same motor or they have homologated motors where you can't touch them. You order them, they're delivered, you install them, you race them. Um, you modify them, it's, it's disqualifying. Um, those are not the series that I like to participate in. You know, I, I, I have always wanted to participate in, in racing series where, you know, you could build your own. And, you know, yes, um, you had to fit within certain criteria, usually power to weight ratio. Um, and, uh, but you could, you could do whatever you wanted to, to the car and to the engine within certain parameters. Um, so it gave you that ability to be creative and, uh, and build that. Um, and so for, for me, yes, um, uh, there is at the bottom of that pyramid an engine building business. Um, and I have, I've kind of grown organically on top of that. You know, I, I wanted to learn the, the ropes of club racing, which I've done. Um, and then I wanted to, you know, have the engine building business and, and then build the overall racing business on top of that. And, uh, and that's really where we're, we've gotten, um, my, uh, my colleague in the engine building business is a fellow by the name of Dusty Renteria. And he is the former head of the race engine shop at Dynan Engineering. And uh, BMW enthusiasts will immediately recognize uh, the name of Steve Dynan. Um, he was, you know, he's kind of a vaunted uh, BMW tuner. And um, he, his race engines as designed and built by Dusty were the ones that won the Rolex 24 hours um, three times. Uh, and so Dusty has a few, a few, few, a little bit of racing experience building the engine that I came to love and that I built. And so we, we work together. Um, it's not his, he's primarily a BMW trackside engineer and I'm primarily, primarily a lawyer, but uh, the two of us love to uh, build engines. And so again, that's what helped us have that at the core of our racing business. So how do you, how does a driver or somebody who wants to race, how do they mm -hmm. find opportunities to race? <clears throat> Different at the club level, right? Um, anybody who wants to begin racing and didn't grow up karting and racing. And I mean, there really are two totally different paths. Um, if you are going to be a pro racer of any note, you are going to start as a child and you are going to be a karting kid. You're going to kart you know, hardcore on a national basis. And then you're going to progress into, you know, race cars at a very early age, principally because your reactions and your, um, you know, your, your abilities are going to be at their peak at a very young age. And, um, you know, and, and, and they also kind of get um, uh, firmed up at a very early age. And so you need to start that early if you're really going to be at the very top of your profession. So Most karting, of us are not that, right? <laughs> so, so karting acts as a farm system for professional yes, racing teams. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you, if you don't cart, you're probably not going to be an F1 driver, right? Um, and they all start that way. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, but, but for, the, for the mere mortals among us, such as I, um, you decide you want to get into club racing, um, you need to, you know, start going to what are, you know, called um, just, you know, um, uh, you know, racing events where you get to race your car or not race your car, but drive your car 
on um, a, a track with others of similar ability. And they usually divide you into various groups, you know, um, and the, 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 young, the, the most inexperienced group will have a, an instructor that rides a shotgun with them. Mm. And, uh, um, and then once you kind of progress to running solo, you move to group two. And, uh, and then when you get a little faster, you might go into, you know, uh, the next group, and then you ultimately get into high speed, you know, but it's still just you and a bunch of other people driving around the track and you give each other what are called point buys. When somebody is faster than you and, you know, you don't want to try to go faster than they, you pull over to one side and you point, give them a point point by <laughs> tell them to go on by you. And uh, so it's not racing. And there are very strict rules for how to um, prevent, you know, anybody from having a wreck or, and it's all very safe and fun. Um, and that kind of high performance driving is a lot of what people will do when they have kind of high performance cars um, that they drive on the street, but they also want to see what they can do on a racetrack. Um, and then you also have people who are just practicing, right. For club racing. Right. And that was me. Um, uh, you know, I went to, to VIR and, you know, pretty quickly progressed into, you know, the, the high speed, you know, group and, um, and just started. And then, and then you have to go to a, a club racing school and get your club racing license. Um, and you can do that a number of different ways. I, I went to Bondurant and got, you know, the basics. And then I went to a NASA competition school, um, which was, you know, a long weekend of racing. Uh, where, you know, they classroom instruction and then, you know, they teach you how to go around a corner with uh, three wide, right? <laughs> and without bumping into one another. Okay, three um, wide meaning three cars abreast. Three cars wide, right, okay. going so, around so, the corner. Somebody, it, somebody's in the low part of the, the corner and somebody's <laughs> kind of sideways. Exactly. Yep. And, you know, you and you learn the, the rules of engagement um, in club racing where, you know, at what point when a car is trying to pass you, do you have the right to hold your line and prevent them from passing you? Mm -hmm. But at what point are, do you have to give way and give them what's called racing room? Right. Um, there are very strict rules about this and you have to learn them if you're going to engage in club racing, because the, the, the rule of club racing is everybody wants to take their car home undamaged at the end of the day right. and not die. If you can manage those two things, you've had a good weekend. And if on top of that, you actually win something, you get a podium. Great. It's a plastic trophy and you can, you know, just swing it around and, and be happy about that. Um, but, uh, but the main thing is just to go out there and have fun and compete and to, uh, to not damage anybody's car and to not get hurt. It's, it's soul crushing to know that after all of that investment and all of that time, it's a plastic trophy. It's a plastic trophy. Yep. Wow. Wow. <laughs> now, but it, it is meaningful and people do compete very, very hard for those trophies. And like I said, the top club racers, I, I know, uh, the top club racer um, right now uh, in, in my group um, progressed into pro racing with the, the Porsche uh, club racing circuit and is doing quite well. And uh, you know, and he's in his late fifties. And um, so, you know, it's uh, uh, it, it, the, the top club racers are really very, very good and could be pro racers if they wanted to be. You were talking a bit, and we've got a break coming up, but we'll touch yep. on this quickly, and then we'll come back to it. You were talking a bit about the the safety protocols and the commonly accepted rules that exist in club racing, and it's designed mm -hmm. to to preserve equipment and to protect the drivers. And life, yeah. 15% <laughs> um, of people, when surveyed, say that they watch Formula One racing because of the risks to the drivers that come with operating at, at, at high speeds, which is either... Um, 
a lot of schadenfreude or a, a you know, they're, they're, they're about the risk, but not the actuality. In yeah. reality, over the last 25 years, there have been 500 fatalities, and most of those are not in the type of racing that right. that they're looking, watching it, or even what you're <coughs> describing. It's all short strips. Yep. So. Look, um, I have a lot to say about all of that. Um, <laughs> well, well, we, know, we have one minute. I know, we have one minute, so we'll get to it. But I'll, I'll, uh, before we do that, I, I will say, you know, a lot of people are impacted by you know, the old statement from Ernest Hemingway that, you know, real men only engage in two kinds of sports and that's bullfighting and, and car racing. Right. And, uh, because of the risks involved. Right. And, um, you know, uh, that's, that's, uh, malarkey <laughs> to put it nicely, but, um, in any event, but we'll, we'll talk about safety after the break. Uh, I gotta tell you, I've been more, I've been more damaged from playing Scrabble with my wife than, than anything a bull or a car could do. <laughs> but, but we'll, yeah, we'll, I have no we'll... intention of doing any, 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 uh, bullfighting. But well, car exactly. racing, yeah. Exactly. Well, we're talking with Peter Partee on the ins and outs of the motorsport business. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're going to take a short break for some messages from our sponsors. Stick around and we'll be right back. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at VoiceAMBusiness. Again, that's at VoiceAMBusiness. And stay current. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're talking about the business of strapping on a car, going fast, and if you're really lucky, getting a trophy at the end of the drive. The business <laughs> of <one>. racing <laughs> with Peter Partee, and he reminds me that it's a plastic trophy, which I guess <laughs> is going to have to do for now. So, Peter, we were talking a little bit about, um, over the break and before the break, about the, the issue of the, the inherent danger of 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 auto racing and um and that there is some segment of the population that says that they watch formula one racing because of the risk <laughs> to the drivers that come with operating at high speeds and how much goes into preventing unfortunate outcomes yeah i mean look i, I it disgusts me to think that people are in there for the schadenfreude of you know seeing wrecks and that sort of thing um because um uh, all, all you have to do is see one of your friends uh, uh, on, in the club racing circuit have a major wreck and you realize how real it is and how substantial the risk is. You know, it's, it's like a plane crash. It rarely happens, but if it happens, chances are it's going to be bad for you. Mm -hmm. um, and we, there are substantial safety regulations that each of the clubs impose. Um, <laughs> your cage in your car has to be welded and with a certain amount of tubing and certain to a very specific spec. Um, it has to have a complete fire system. You have to have a fire suit, a particular kind of helmet. I mean, there, there are lots of safety regulations and they're all very important. Um, <clears throat> but even when you comply with all of those safety regulations, um, you can be hurt. I had uh, uh, an acquaintance of mine in the club racing circuit who um, was um, uh, at a track in a Corvette and he went around a corner, tried to split two cars and he wound up going um, the back end of his vet into a tree. Um, his car caught on fire. He was knocked out from the impact. So he couldn't activate his fire system. And um, they ended up having to cut his harnesses you know, you wear harnesses, you know, both shoulder lap and uh, belts um, to get him out. And by that point, he had some third degree burns on parts of his body and um, and, and, and some pretty serious second degree burns. Um, and, you know, he's still recuperating, you know, I think it's eight months later. Mm. Um, and he had all the necessary equipment. Um, what what one thing he didn't have was, um, you know, a, a, a thermally activated sensor for his fire system, right. um, which is now everybody's running out to go buy those <laughs> because of Mark Petronas's um, incident. Um, and nobody wants to be knocked out and then be engulfed in flames without the ability to turn on their fire system. Your fire system, when, when activated, is supposed to give you enough time to get out of the car. Um, it, it floods the car with... Um, either a foam or a deactivant that, you know, kills the fire long enough for you to unbuckle your harness and get out of the car. And we all practice in clubs, racing schools, how quickly you can get out of the car, right. you know, uh, when, when you're not knocked out, right? Right. Um, you know, under ideal conditions, you know, how quickly can you get out of the car and you have to do it within a certain amount of time or you can't race. Um, and, um, you know, all of this just goes to how, you know, critically important it is to, you know, to be safe. And um, no, nobody uh, wants to, I don't, I don't think, I, 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 I really, I find it disgusting that people would actually enjoy seeing wrecks and, and harm. Um, I, I did have a, a friend of mine who was racing right in front of me. He's one of the fastest guys in my club racing group around VIR. And we were going around what's called T10, which is the 
the, a, a particular turn going into another turn called Oak Tree. Um, you, you know all these racetracks by their particular turns. And um, he had um, the back wheel of his car, what's known as the rear trailing arm bushing, bushing pocket, just come out of his car. So he lost a wheel and he barrel rolled about 10 times um, into an open space. And he was far enough ahead of me to where um, I just saw the wreck. And then as I was going around Oak Tree and looking to my left to see if he was okay, you know, he stood up and waved. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, thank goodness. Um, you know, young guy with a baby and a wife. And, um, you know, um, it was a very, very serious wreck. And it was just mechanical, right? He had a, a mechanical piece of his car that wore out. And notwithstanding regular inspections, um, he didn't identify it in advance. <clears throat> that sort of thing happens. Um, and you have to be prepared for that. But um, we take all the steps necessary to try to minimize um, the harm that occurs right. if right. and when that sort of thing happens. But I mean, that, that really, these stories really sum up what ra the, the, the risks of racing. It, you know, the, sure. the speed that exists in amateur racing and certainly at professional level racing means that you're thinking halfway down the track before you get there, you know, you're, you're, you, you end you, you hit a straightaway yeah. and you've already made the next two turns in your mind. And, <laughs> yeah. The straightaways uh, are when you get to relax a moment, tighten right. your harnesses uh, and breathe a little bit. <laughs> and, and so anything that interrupts that, that flow has to be reacted to in an instant. You've all of a sudden got to recalculate everything that you were, that, that your muscles have decided they're going to do right. in the next 20, 30 seconds while you're going 180 miles an hour. And, okay. and, you know, everything is working fine until something breaks and falls off the car. And right. that's simply the reality of, of that sport. Right. Especially when you're in club racing, right? And, you know, people don't always have $100,000 to spend on building their car. Um, sometimes they'll build it for 20, right? And that, that car may not have all the wonderful mechanical benefits of a car that has the higher level of investment. Um, <clears throat> You know, you, you, but, you know, people still race them in the same, right. you know, on the same tracks at the same speeds. And um, so there are varying levels of risk that people are willing to incur to do this. Um, I'm, I've been one that, you know, I just, you know, I, I, I buy the absolute best fire system I can get my hands on. I, you know, <laughs> replace my harnesses every year. You know, my seats are always up to date. And I just, you know, I, I, I'm not taking any material risk um, right. that, I, that I don't have to. Well, so let, let me ask the lawyer in you an interesting question. Yeah. Well, I hope it's an interesting question. It might sure. not be. Uh, in, in a situation like that, where you can have such variability between the quality of care that goes into a car on the track versus another car on the same track at the same time, yeah. do, does the $20,000 maintenance car present a risk to the other cars that are on the track with it? You know, theoretically, um, the $20,000 car can be maintained at a level that does not present any greater risk um, than the $100,000 car. Mm -hmm. um, in, in fact, some in some cases, the $100,000 car will have more aggressive uh, suspension components on it that uh, might be less durable than the stock components that the, the cheaper car stuck with. Um, so uh, that sort of thing is usually managed. Um, and, um, but, um, certainly the, the $20,000 car is not going to have a, you know, $3,000 fire system in it. Right. Right. It's going to have the minimal, 
kind of virus system. It might not have those thermally activated switches that would have, you know, helped my, my, my friend in his right. accident. Um, he, he, you know, um, and so, yeah, they, they do present a slightly greater risk, but primarily to the driver of that car, who is obviously accepting that risk voluntarily. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and sure, could does it mean that there's a possibility that that car will um, have an issue on track that might involve you? Sure, but um, generally not. Generally, it's more of a risk to the driver of the car than it is to others. We talked earlier about um, uh, about how karting, youth karting, is is a farm system yeah. for for the pro racing circuit, and how some people who are operating at the top of the amateur clubs uh, club circuits can transition into uh, a uh, a pro slot. How, how do professional racers get started? How do professional racing drivers get started? Well, like I said, you know, one of those two ways, right? Either from the time they're a kid, they're groomed for it because mm -hmm. they have the you know, reaction times, um, things are pretty sophisticated these days. They measure these kids for reaction times. Um, I remember GM, one of the GM reps talking to me about Andy Lee and his reaction times just being, you know, out of this world. Hmm. And, you know, uh, I can remember seeing Andy then years later, you know, in a cart when he was a, a pro driver and he would, he would do 360s in the middle of the track going, you know, top speed just because he thought it was fun. And, you know, I mean, you know, I, I would have been all over the track. I would have been dead. You know, <laughs> so I mean, there there are kids that <clears throat> they're just groomed from day one. If you're not groomed like that, then um, it's it's generally, at least in my experience, going to be um, you know somebody who gets into club racing um, probably in their late twenties, early thirties when they have some money, and then um, you know, and they they work at it, and they get better at it, and they do it over time. And, um, and perhaps invest a little bit more money as they're capable in it. And then, you know, they get a proceed. Somebody says, hey, you know, you're fast enough. It's all about times, right? If you can go around <clears throat> BIR um, in less than two minutes in an E46 M3 outfitted in a particular NASA class that I race in, you know, you are really fast. You VIR is oh Virginia International Raceway. Sorry. Okay. Um, you know, it, it, you are very fast on the full course going under two minutes in that type of car is really fast. Um, and that means you, you've probably got what it takes to be a pro driver. Um, and I have, you know, one friend who, like I said, you know, made the transition from that club racing to, you know, the Porsche club circuit and is doing quite well. And, um, and he's in his late fifties and um you know really killing it so and and once a driver makes uh, gets a seat on the pro circuit mm -hmm. what what is what is their life like what you know are they are are is is there kind of a an entry level series of of races <laughs> on the pro circuit or are you driving you know the third car on a team in in I, well you know and i can't as... speak from experience right because i've never been that guy right. but what what i what i know about it is that it, it's it varies dramatically right you know you have some guys who will just be offered a pro seat in a particular series for a particular car for a particular year and they get to do it um sometimes they are a um, they, they're expected to be a funded driver where they pay for their expenses themselves. Um, other times they're, uh, it's a funded seat, meaning that somebody else is paying for all of that. Mm -hmm. 
if, if Andy Lee were to drive on one of my teams and we'll talk about my endurance racing efforts later, um, uh, you know, uh, I, he, he, he would be somebody we would pay for. <laughs> right. His skill set is such that it warrants that. Um, I, on the other hand, would always be a funded driver. I would always have to pay for my seat. Right. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of like a scramble in golf. You know, um, I'm like the C or D player. And Andy's like an A plus player, right? And um, you know, and then there are plenty of people in the in the middle, um, and um, and so I think it really depends upon that. Um, I was recently reading something. My my, my sweet mate next to me at V at Virginia International Raceway is a, a, a longtime racer and instructor, very famous guy named Peter Krause. And uh, Peter recently posted um, a, a really wonderful article about the various. Um, um, levels of uh, profitability for race car drivers. Um, there are some race car drivers who will make in the six figures because they are that good and people want them. Um, they have that kind of reputation. They've won mm-hmm. enough um, that they, they will. And, and I'm not talking about F1. F1 is a world unto, unto itself. Right. But um, everybody else, um, it, you know, they, you, there are some drivers who will make in the six figures, but uh, not that many. Uh, not very many. And uh, they are usually the ones who have been groomed and been doing it since karting days uh, and have been racing for, you know, 20 years and winning. Um, and, um, uh, you know, uh, that the, they're the people who I think, you know, end up getting a decent paycheck. Um, the, the rest of us are, um, you know, if you get good enough to warrant having a pro seat, um, it will be a, an occasional thing. Um, and most of the time you will be paying the expenses, um, even if, you know, your lap times are close to the pros. So it sounds like it's racing. The racing compensatory system is a lot like a lot of other sports where Mm -hmm. you've got a few people who are very highly compensated and we'll talk about that in a second, but most (laughs) of the people are earning, you know, league minimum or, or, or subsistence level wage. Uh, for, if that. For, for, if that. For, yeah, for, for what yeah, that I mean, were. There, there are plenty of racers who, you know, um, uh, you know, who instruct primarily because instructing is infinitely more profitable. Right. Um, instructing guys like me, right? <laughs> you know, I, I pay Andy to come instruct me for the weekend, you know, that's more profitable to him than usually, you know, racing right. uh, on that weekend. Um, not always, but some, but many times. And so a lot of them will instruct, a lot of them will provide, you know, um, uh, advice on building race cars and that sort of thing. Uh, Peter Krause is a great example of a, a very, you know, highly decorated racer who then became an instructor and then also, you know, an advisor with respect to the electronic side of, uh, of, of race car building. And, uh, you know, um, there, there are lots of ways that one can make money having been a pro racer or being a pro racer. Um, I don't know, I don't know too many people who actually make a living at, being just a pro racer. Well, if you've joined us late, we're talking with Peter Partee about the business of racing. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. So looking at the the racing industry in the U.S. as a whole, we talked earlier about how engine building is the most common employment opportunity. The third largest employment opportunity in in, in American racing is retail, which tells me that racing teams and the industry are making a lot more money selling sweatshirts uh, than they're necessarily making selling anything else, which kind of gets back to 
the compensation question. The racers who have developed names for themselves, is the money mm -hmm. really in endorsements and other things related to their status? When you say retail, though, I think that encompasses a whole other category of things other than what you're thinking about. I yeah. think it's talking about performance parts. Could be cars. that, too. And um, that is a huge market in the U.S. Um, you know, um, uh, the wonderful guy named James Clay, who founded a company called Bimmer World um, in Virginia mm -hmm. and has is, you know, uh, become a, a wonderful um, uh, resource for parts and advice um, for uh, club racers and pro racers alike. And of course, James is also a pro racer, but um, that um, uh, th those um, uh, uh, um, that, 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 that kind of um, um, support, sorry, I got distracted. That's um, somebody coming in the door, <laughs> but um, um, the, 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 he, he's really, I think, done exactly, he's kind of the paradigm of um, what someone does who wants to be a racer, but then also needs to um, <clears throat> make money on the retail side. Um, he, you know, you go to the Bemmer World website and you can see parts that James has tested out on race cars, BMW race cars, mm -hmm. and said, this works, this doesn't. You can buy this part from me and here's the price. And, um, and then, you know, so he has this entire warehouse of uh, race tested parts that um, uh, really, I think, provide, you know, that wonderful economic base for James's, you know, racing operations. And then it's just built on that. That has been, I think, the core of, of his business was, you know, testing out racing parts and then being able to sell them online. That aspect of retail, I think, is where there is a tremendous market in the U.S. Um, and, and abroad. But um, that market is really, I think, captured by the retail point. I don't know that it is so much the, you know, um, uh, paraphernalia that's emblazoned with a particular F1 team yeah. or racer's name on it. You know, I don't, I don't think people go for that like they do in, say, NFL football. It's like, not like jerseys, you know. Um, I, I think the real retail business in, in the racing world is, is parts. Yeah. Un, un, unlike in the, uh, in the early 2000s when it looked like NASCAR was going to take over the world. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. I remember those stats back in the early 2000s. Everybody said NASCAR was the world's largest spectator sport, right? And not so much anymore. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, you know, I, I always, always um, give anybody who's a NASCAR fan a hard time because they say, oh, you know, are, are you a NASCAR fan? I said, no, no, no. I turn both ways. <laughs> you know? um, <laughs> and then, you know, you'll always love to see when, you know, NASCAR drivers try their hands at a road course where they have to right. turn both ways. Right. Some of them are very good at it. Some of them not so much. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I'm not sure that I'd be any good, you know, going at you know, 240 miles around, uh, an hour around a very small oval track. You know, right. that, that's not my thing either. Although I've done it a couple of times. Not, not my thing. You have to go way too high on the bank. It's crazy. Um, in any event. Um, but I, I think that, you know, uh, it, it's, it's really, you know, the, the retail side of the racing business is something that is, uh, uh, it's very profitable, but it's currently under attack by the EPA uh, because um, they have interpreted the Clean Air Act uh, in a way that um, uh, basically prohibits uh, people from modifying cars that are intended to be run on the street, even if they're only going to be used on the track. 
Hmm. And, and, and the reason that they've taken that approach to the Clean Air Act, which is novel and just been an interpretation that's been put forth over the past few years, um, is so many um, performance parts places will sell you for parts for racing purposes only, but then people put them on a streetcar. Right, right. And so it, it blows the emissions of the car and, you know, uh, it, it, it's not intended for being used on a road, but it is. And so the EPA's kind of ham-handed, blunt instrument way of trying to address that is by saying you can't modify any car uh, that was, you know, built for the street for racing purposes, period. And of course, that would mean club racing goes away because right. nobody has the money to buy a BMW factory race car um, for club racing purposes, right? right. I, I mean, if you're going to pro race, sure, you know, but not for club racing. Right. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, there is, uh, and there's a big movement um, against this to try to something called the RPM Act that's being pushed to change that interpretation of the Clean Air Act. So as to make it clear that we are permitted to modify streetcars for racing purposes only. Um, and in the meantime, the EPA has struck a very, has not seemed to enforce that interpretation except on companies who are clearly making parts at retail um, uh, for purposes of being used on streets, not race cars. Well, let's bring this back to, uh, to your business. Parti Racing is an engine rebuild shop and, yes. uh, and you don't have a website. You, I you don't do, do, but a... it's not developed. <laughs> right. But I, I reserve but, the name. But in that regard, you're not unlike most businesses in your space, 51% right. of companies in the industry say they don't use social media to promote their business. 49% don't have a website. <laughs> About 20% say they spend nothing on marketing to their potential customers. Right. One in three say that word of mouth is their That's primary option to generate awareness it. of I their business. <laughs> and, and now you've, you've done what, 40 something rebuilds and it's all yeah. word of mouth. Yes. Uh, now, I mean, that's over, what, five years, but um, we did do 15 motors last year, which is a huge uptick for us. Um, and uh, that was kind of in the, the wake of a particular customer. I think I showed you the YouTube video that he did of me, um, you know, who, who just said, you know, said, I'd, I'd been looking for somebody to rebuild my S62 for my E39 M5. He's another crazy E39 M5 enthusiast. And, uh, and I finally found you and I can't believe it took me so long to find you, you know, and um uh, we just, um, we've always had enough business to, you know, keep us busy, uh, to make a little money, um, but also to work with the kind of people that we want to work with, um, enthusiasts, um, racers, uh, people who, who really care about the cars and the engines the way we do, um, and, uh, and, and, and not have to really develop any kind of social media presence. Um, you know, uh, I have a very poor Facebook uh, site for uh, party racing, and I do have the name reserved uh, for a website. But uh, we have a little bit of an IG presence, although Dusty does most of that, not me. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, um, but it 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 you're right. Uh, word of mouth. Um, there is something called the uh, the M5 board. Um, uh, it's a uh, a website that's kind of dedicated to this particular car and this particular engine that has uh, it draws a lot of enthusiasts in. And if you go on that website, you'll you'll find me pretty quickly. <laughs> So um, that, that, that's really the kind of advertising we've done, and it is word of mouth, and, um, and I really kind of like it that way. In a nutshell, what do you think the, the, the biggest challenges for uh, an operation yeah. like yours are for the next few years? <laughs> well, 
Um, look, um, you know, engine building is inherently risky, right? Um, although the new, new, Newtonian mechanics govern this, uh, we're not going to hit the speed of light anytime soon. So, I mean, the rules are here are pretty straightforward, right? You Hopefully. know, engines do what they're supposed to do if you build them right. Um, but, you know, we're all human and uh, some things can go wrong. We've had, um, not that we did anything wrong, but we had a part one time that just came from BMW that was defective and it caused the motor to not run right. So we had to, you know, spend $15,000 rebuilding the motor. And uh, that was, that, that, that's a huge risk um, economically to a business of my size. Um, but you just, you kind of have to be that way. You have to take care of your customers and make sure that they, you know, our, our goal is to help our customers achieve their automotive dreams, period. And we take great joy, um, not just in earning money doing that, but in actually seeing that happen, bringing that to fruition. Um, and I think that that makes us qualitatively different than most shops. And, and is it unique that, that your shop comes from having had this incredibly negative experience with an engine blowing up once and almost blowing up a second time? I don't know. Time? Maybe so. And, and also Maybe so. being a racer? Maybe so. Um, you know, I, I definitely, I wanted the infrastructure, as I said before, of having a shop and an engine building business on which I could base my racing operation. And uh, we are building my E39 M5 that I bought years and years ago, my dream car into an endurance racer for what's known as the 25 hours of Thunder Hill, which is right. uh, um, a, 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 an endurance race on the West coast um, that, you know, a lot of pros and amateurs compete in that. And, um, and so, you know, we, you know, I wanted to have that infrastructure in place to do that. And, um, uh, and, and the engine building business has, has provided that, uh, not only economically, but also in terms of, you know, building our own engines. It's never a risk for us that we're going to blow an engine. We can just build ourselves another one, right? Well, right you there. know, if, if, if there's a better way to end this discussion, I don't know what it would be. You, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you'll always have your own engines. Peter, Indeed. thank you so much for joining us. Peter, well, thank you for having me, Ted. I really enjoyed it. Peter Partee is proprietor of Partee Racing LLC, and when he's not doing that, he's a partner in the restructuring group at Hunt and Andrews Kurth in New York City. You can find Partee Racing on Instagram at Partee Racing LLC. You can find Hunt and Andrews Kurth on the web at huntandak.com, and we'll put links to Peter's bio and social media under the episode notes on this show's website. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by the talented Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Emily Stern and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. And thanks to Gabe for stepping in as our sound engineer today. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.